This is episode 124 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are 6 Everyday Things You Can Do to Stay Prepared, Prepper Survival Skills, Tools and Tips for Living Off the Land, and How to Make a Water Filter Last Longer. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, uh, you, have you ever felt like, uh, on some days, that you're like the only sane person around? That's uh, kind of like a, a feel today. It's crazy, you know? There's so many crazy things going on. Uh, hey, yeah, we are going to look at three awesome uh, articles, I think, today that provide a lot of good information. But just remember, if, you, uh, if you're not going over to PrepperWebsite.com, you want to do that because there's a lot of great information over there. There's a lot of articles that we don't, uh, that we don't read here on the podcast, as well as pages that are devoted to specific themes, like uh, um, you have alternative news, conspiracy, uh, DIY, frugal living. Uh, you know, all firearms, you know, some some good pages over there where uh, you can get a lot of good information. So if you haven't hit PrepperWebsite.com for a, for a while, you know, go over there and check it out. A lot of good information. Let's go ahead and get started. Today's article, our first article comes to us from PlanAndPrepared.com. And uh, this is six everyday things you can do to stay prepared. Um I learned a couple of things just in reading them. I mean, it's kind of you know it's basic information, good stuff. But I think you might learn uh, a couple of things here, little tidbits. So uh, you know, hang in here. Uh, hopefully, you'll learn it. Uh, when it comes to being prepared, you will find so many great articles on things like bugging out, food and water storage, 72-hour kits, etc. All of it is very pertinent information. But oftentimes, I see the little everyday things that people can do to be more prepared get overlooked. While these things may not be as sexy as bug out bags and ammo storage, they can be just as crucial if not more so. So with that in mind, here are six things you can do every day to make you more prepared. Always keep your phone charged. In my eight lessons learned from disaster article, I mentioned an officer whose battery died while working in Moore, Oklahoma after a tornado and was unable to communicate with anyone. Imagine if you are caught in a quickly developing emergency and your primary source of communication and up-to-the-minute information is dying because your battery is not charged. That's not smart. Having knowledge about what is going on around you is vital to your ability to survive a disaster. Being able to communicate is equally important. With today's technology, a smartphone allows you to do both. When a tornado recently hit my area, I used my cell phone to live to live stream the weather and to text my family to keep them apprised of the situation. During that storm, my phone battery had plenty of life in it should I have had to make a speedy exit. I stayed up to the minute with news and information during the entire storm. Not only do I keep my cell phone charged, I have several ways of ensuring it stays charged. I keep a car charger in my truck and an extra wall charger in my EDC bag. I also have a Gold Zero solar panel charger and a hand crank emergency radio that will charge cell phones. With today's smartphones, a lot of the old myths about battery life no longer apply. You no longer need to let batteries drain all the way to zero before charging them. In fact, experts now say that if you let your lithium-ion batteries continually drain to zero percent, they could become unstable. 
In addition, with today's smartphones, you can continue to use your phone while it is charging. And experts say that today's batteries are smart enough that they will stop charging when full. Just be sure to try and keep your phone battery as optimal at optimal temperatures. Extreme heat and cold can slowly kill your phone battery. If you are short on time and want to get as much charge as possible, put your phone on airplane mode while charging. This will help your phone to charge faster. I have been told that playing games in airplane, airplane mode stops annoying ads. I have not tried it because I don't play many games on my phone. Even if you have no cell coverage, your phone still can, can still help you be located if you became lost or stranded. So keep it charged and ready to go at all times. For more information on using cell phones during an emergency, click the link. So uh, I totally agree with this one uh, on uh, just just like uh, just like uh, James is, is writing here uh, in my in my backpack I carry multiple battery chargers uh, I have uh, you know a wall charger I have a you know charger in my car or in my truck uh, you know different ways to do that and so I totally agree with that I have uh, my my phone does wireless charging so like at night. I just lay it on a little pad and it charges. And I have one, uh, a cheaper version of it at work, and I just leave it, just leave it sitting on that on my desk. Uh, so that's plugged up always at work. And so when I get to work, and I just lay my phone down on that little pad, and it keeps it charged up. So I uh, totally agree with that. You should have that phone uh, going. Uh, you know, have it charged all the time. Um, did not know that about airplane mode. Like if you needed a quick charge, uh, you know, put it on airplane mode and, and let it charge up. So I'll try that next time I need a, a quick charge. Uh, we, over at the, um, on the, the Facebook group, I uh, posted an app because we were talking about compasses and stuff here last week. So I posted an app that, uh, and I, I did, did it on the, uh, the podcast as well. I think on that episode, you can go back and, and check it. And, and uh, I linked to the app that I was talking about. Um, and so posted it up there and, and asked other people, hey, is, are there any other apps that you use that maybe people don't know for survival or whatever reasons? Uh, so we had some, uh, you know, uh, post their apps and even pictures of their phone where, uh, you know, where they have all their survival apps or whatever. So if you have any to, uh, to lend to that list, go head on over to the Facebook group. Uh, you can get to it at Prepper website pod, theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. And uh, if you haven't, if you're not a member there, just ask to join, and uh, we'll just uh, you know get you in there, and you know find that post and add to it. Um, it's always good to find apps out there. There's just so many out there, but uh, totally agree with that one. All right, so the next one is uh, I learned something here too. The next one is keep your gas tank full. Uh, it is a sinking, terrible feeling to be caught up in an emergency setting, and your gas tank needle is ready, rapidly approaching E. Or imagine being caught in a terrible traffic accident on the highway where you are stuck in traffic and barely moving. The nearest gas station might be 10 miles away, but you are creeping along and now almost out of gas. When disaster strikes and you need to leave the area ASAP, the last thing you want to worry about is fuel. You may not be able to fill up. Electricity may be down and the gas pumps may not be working correctly. Or your planned evacuation route may not be accessible and you may have to spend time and gas finding another route to your destination. Having a full tank is really a backup plan should you find yourself in any of the aforementioned scenarios. Personally, I always fill up at about half a tank, meaning I generally have a half tank reserve in all my vehicles. I cannot remember the last time one of my vehicles got to a quarter of a tank. 
it has just become second nature to me to fill up at half a tank. As for the myth about only filling up early in the morning or at night, it is just not true. According to Joe Bruzek of Cars.com, the reason this myth is around is because the reasoning is when the fuel is cooler, it's denser. A denser fuel will pack more energy in the same amount of space, so you'll get more bang for your buck. While density may change with temperature, underground storage tanks sit 15 to 20 feet below the surface, so the fuel stays around 55 degrees Fahrenheit. One of the only times that you'll find a warmer, less dense gas is if the fuel doesn't have time to cool off after being pumped into the underground tanks. Fuel temperature stabilizes quickly, so the chances of this making any difference, differences are slim. So, if you are on your way home from work and your gas needle drops below half a tank, you might consider pulling into a gas station and filling up. Also, keep in mind that you may not need to spend extra money on higher octane fuel. A new report from AAA says that the driver that drivers wasted over two billion—that's billion with a B—on premium gas gasoline over the past year. AAA has found that premium gasoline, and th these are quotes, sorry, premium gasoline doesn't improve performance, fuel efficiency, or emissions for vehicles that run on regular grade fuel. Yet, an estimated 16.5 million Americans have opted to pay for premium gasoline at least once in the last 12 months, believing it's better for their car's engine. Drivers upgraded to premium gasoline more than 270 million times, AAA said, end quote. So save a little money and use regular gasoline unless your vehicle has an engine that specifically requires a higher octane fuel. In addition to keeping your gas tank full, check your other fluids and make sure they are topped off as well. I check my vehicle fluids every week. I do this on the first gas fill up of the week. This ensures that I won't be short on things like oil or transmission fluid. Okay, so... Um, I, you know, I had always heard the thing about filling up in the morning or, you know, in the evening time and uh, didn't even, you know, wasn't even processing that tanks are, you know, far enough into the ground uh, that they're probably staying cool enough. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen those tanks go in there, they, they go in there pretty deep. Now, they are under a whole bunch of concrete. And so, like, something in, uh, I'm just saying right now in Houston, it's freaking hot, man. Um uh, just walking, I just, you know, after work, I stopped at the grocery store to pick up a couple of things and uh, just walking from there to, uh, you know, from the from the truck to inside. I'm like, man, I can't. It's only 95 degrees, but it feels a lot hotter. So you wonder if, you know, being under all that concrete, if they, it does heat up maybe a little bit. But I don't know. Um, it does make a lot of sense that being 15 to 20 feet underneath there uh, is going to keep it cool. I'm reminded of... Uh, we uh, we took uh, my parents were uh, gracious enough to gift us uh, the whole family uh, an Alaskan cruise one year and uh, we did a, a an excursion into a mountain and really if you could if you can like if you had a survival retreat or you know you had a mountain and you had a cave uh, man that's that's really you know that's kind of where you want to be because it was like at a thirty it was like thirty two degrees all the time. And uh, so you, you needed a little bit of a jacket to be in there, you know, a little windbreaker, um, you know, because we were coming in and out. But uh, it was really, really nice. And uh, so, uh, you know, you, you get that feeling. You're walking, you, you're walking from outside, which maybe probably was about, you know, high 40s, low 50s. 
and you walk right into this cave, into this mountain, and very quickly the temperature starts dropping. And so, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense to when, you, when you're underground there. So anyway, um, you know, the, the halfway mark, I try to do that as well, but just sometimes life happens. And so uh, it just, you know, sometimes life happens and you go a little bit longer on, on getting your gas, but try to do that at, at, the, at the halfway mark, um, you know, being, being empty so uh, you can keep it full. All right, continuing on, keeping extra cash on you. As mentioned above, there will be times when electricity may be down and credit card machines, ATMs will not function. They have, there have even been times when I went into a store only to be told that their internet was down. This means they could not accept credit cards. The cash reserve I, kept, I keep isn't just for the end of the world scenarios. I have dipped into my emergency cash on a few occasions. I have forgotten to stop by the ATM in the past. Of course, I then need 10 or $20 to pay off or buy something I really needed. In those times, the spare cash has been very handy. Always remember to replenish it. I made this a habit by deliberately setting $50 in small denominations. I hide them in a small compartment in my wallet. Since my wallet is part of my EDC or everyday carry, that money is always on me. I don't count that money with the regular currency I have and sometimes I even forget it is there. If money is tight, you might start with just a couple of $1 bills. When you get 6 or $7, trade 5 of them up for a $5 bill. Over time, you will have your reserve bill. You could also throw your leftover change into a jar. When it reaches $5, trade it in and put that $5 in your emergency cash. I would also carry smaller denominations, nothing over $20. You never know when you might be in a situation where you need to buy something and the other party cannot make change. I carry $50 with a singles with a single $20 and the rest in fives and ones. Some may want to carry more, others less. I would be careful not to carry too much. I certainly would, wouldn't carry half my life savings around with me. Just enough that I had some extra cash in an emergency. Carry your EDC. Emergencies and disasters are never planned and usually strike with little to no warning. Having some equipment on you to help you get past the initial event could go a long way to helping you survive. EDC or, or everyday carrier are the things you keep on your person at all times. But I have found that I use my EDC for more just than just disasters. So many times I have found that having my EDC on me helped make my life a bit easier. Something as simple as having a small flashlight on me during a temporary power outage made finding the exit much easier. When it comes to EDC gear, you will need to decide what you want to carry on you. To help give you some ideas, here's a link where I talk about my EDC and why I do or don't carry it on me. Having the right gear and equipment is only half the battle. You need to actually carry it on you every day. Here's a video I enjoyed on Adam Savage's Mythbusters EDC. Enjoy. Get in shape. Get and stay in shape. As I have said before, all the gear, supplies, and skills are of little use to you if you are not healthy enough to use them especially in times of emergency and or disasters. Staying healthy and in decent shape will help you overall, your overall health and happiness when times are good. I talk about preppers' need for being healthy and in shape in my article, What You Need to Know About Prepper Physical Fitness. It lists some simple ways to help you drop weight and get yourself into better shape than you are now. These hints and tips are things that you can do every day. Being in shape will not only improve your odds in a true SHTF event, it will also improve your, your overall quality of life. Next is continue to learn and develop new skills. 
Hopefully you understand that while having the right gear and equipment can be a lifesaver, having skills and training is even more important. Skills and knowledge weigh nothing. They won't break or get lost. As a result, I try to learn something new all the time. In addition to the training I receive at work, I try to spend at least 10 to 15 minutes a day, 4 to 5 days a week, learning a new skill or gaining knowledge that could help me in an SHTF scenario. I have found several great Prepper channels on YouTube and the website PrepperWebsite.com posts Prepper-related articles every single day. Hey, thanks for the shout-out, James. I do not let prepping consume my life. I prep to live, not live to prep, but spending a little time each day learning something new, gathering more knowledge, and being aware of current news and events can go a long way in helping you prepare for an emergency or disaster. These little hints and tips are not just for serious SHTF events. They will also make your life easier in your day-to-day -day situations. If you have other Prepper Everyday Preparedness tips, please leave them in the comment section below. Alright, so uh, I think that's good. Uh, you know, I, I actually did learn a couple of things here. And uh, good everyday information to remember. And sometimes you do need that, that, uh, that reminder that, hey, you should, you, know, you should be doing that. You should be keeping a little bit of cash on you. You should have that EDC. Uh, you know, I have several. Actually, I've just recently written an article on my urban, uh, my urban kit. Urban survival. It's not really a survival, but urban kit. And uh, I'll post that on Ed That Matters, you know, um, down the road here. I have a couple of them that I'm re releasing. But, uh, you know, uh, a lot of good information here. And then he's, he's got a lot of links. And uh, then you might want to go check out that video from uh, Mythbusters on EDC. So uh, go check out planandprepared.com. All right. Uh, our next article, there's a lot of information here on this one. And, uh, uh, good stuff. So, you know, hang on to this one. This one's a good one, too. Um, Prepper Survival Skills, Tools, and Tips for Living Off the Land. This one's coming to us from the survivalistblog.net. Um, and so uh, we'll go ahead and get into this one. Good stuff here. Living off the land is a skill that can pay off in large dividends if you are stranded in the wilds long term, want to add more variety into your daily diet at home and reduce food bills, or be prepared in the event of a grid down situation where the grocery sh shelves empty. Having taught extended bushcraft courses during the past 26 years, I found the area of procuring food in the wilderness to be the most challenging skill in the field of wilderness living. Once learned and regularly applied, you will gain greater confidence in the backcountry and know how to obtain food from a land that has much to offer to those who know where to look. The following materials intend to convey practical methods that a person with little experience in the outdoors can use to get started obtaining food from nature's kitchen. The the emphasis of this article is on small game and not big game animals like elk, moose, and deer. On any given day in the wilds, you are going to come across a greater concentration of rabbits, squirrels, woodchucks, marmots, raccoons, and other small critters. For the survivor, these animals will provide sustenance until you can procure the larger game. Food procurement has a lot of myths and misconceptions surrounding it, however. The idea that one can simply grab their bug out bag and head into the hills to live off nature's kitchen for a few months has been perpetuated in the reality shows and can get you into trouble. It took a tribe to feed a tribe and our ancestors relied on sheer numbers to obtain wild food not on a lone wolf mentality. I've had the opportunity to eat just about everything that crawls, flies, walks or slithers from snakes and coyotes to rats and grasshoppers. 
Under conditions where hunger is constantly gnawing away at the body and mind, my food prejudices quickly fade after a few days and you will eat anything that runs in front of you. My success is also greatly increased by having a few key hunting and trapping tools with me at all times. Keeping in mind that game laws vary tremendously from state to state, so research your region of the country to, to determine what's legal. Procuring food in the wilderness can be a challenge because of some of or all of the following reasons. Few people, few people substance hunt or trap like they did a generation ago, and the skills and knowledge base in the community have been reduced or completely disappeared in some regions. When many people hunt today, it is mostly for big game trophies, which means sports first and meat second. Plus, the sheer number of hunters taking into the woods each season is staggering. As a result, state game laws are becoming more restrictive and the pressure from often ill-informed animal rights groups have all but eliminated certain practices such as trapping from many states. The geographic region, desert, mountain, etc. may not support much life to begin with. It is far easier to make it as a hunter-gatherer in the lush Pacific Northwest than in the desert lowlands of the parched Southwest. It may have been a particularly tough year for your region. Perhaps the drought is severe or wildfires are wrecking havoc and thus the animals and plants are suffering. Modern game laws are much different than when our ancestors walked the planet and could harvest any species of animal in any season, day or night. Substance hunting and gathering is best performed as a group or tribe and not as a solo pursuit. The more eyes, ears, and hands out on the land, the greater the odds of obtaining wild meat, fish, and plants. Many of us today have little choices but to go solo, which reduces caloric efficiency. Finally, one cannot discount the TBH effect, trained by Hollywood effect. There is a constant barrage of romantic notions that we receive from movies and reality shows depicting how people are supposed to live in the wilds. If you trek into the wilderness like Jeremiah Johnson, then have realistic expectations of your own skills, what the land can provide, and what is reasonable and legal for your region. Even then, don't expect it to be easy. Four areas of study for the modern hunter-gatherer. In today's world, if you want to feed yourself reasonably well in the backcountry, you must focus on the following four areas of study. 1. Proficiency with the 22 caliber rifle or pistol. 2. Basic fishing methods such as angling. 3. Knowledge of the 10 common edible plants in your region. and 4. How to use traps and snares. Granted, there are other methods of procuring wild game such as bow hunting, slings, bolas, etc. But the above four represent the core skills to set your sights on as a beginner in my opinion. If you are a skilled archer then by all means work with what you know. The more skills you possess in, the, in this realm the more options you have. If you are new to firearms and hunting, then seek out an experienced family member or friend who can show you the basics of firearm safety and marksmanship. I highly recommend taking a hunter safety class. This will provide the foundation skills of safety and basic gun handling skills as well as covering game laws specific to your state. Tools of the Trade Provided you are in, good, in a good habitat, a quality rifle along with the proper training can tip the odds in your favor for procuring wild game. Having been on countless survival treks where we live solely off the land using primitive skills like no modern gear, I can say that I will gladly take a small caliber firearm any day for filing 
or sorry, for filling the stew pot. There are two approaches to living off the land, passive and active. Passive is using traps, snares, deadfalls, trot lines, cast nets, etc. You are setting out the devices and letting it do the work for you while you are back at camp or home. Active is when you are moving across the landscape or still hunting. This is more calorie intensive and not as productive as trapping. I find it I find it best to employ both methods, which increases your food procurement capabilities. I use a Ruger 10-22 with a scope for small game. This is the most ubiquitous 22 on the market with plenty of products if you want to modify the stock, trigger, sights, etc. CCI Mini Mag hollow points are my preferred ammo for hunting. I also have a Marlin Papoose collapsible 22 that I use on occasion. Shotgun. I'm a sucker for the old H&R single shot 20 gauge for hunting small game. You can still find these for under $120 and many a youth has bagged the first, their first squirrel with this simple but efficient shotgun. H&R also makes a hollow synthetic stock called the Survivor. The stock has enough space to stow basic survival supplies. A combination rifle. I think the best of both worlds is getting an over and under rifle. I use either a Savage Model 24, which is a, 20, a 222 caliber over a 20 gauge, or a Savage Model 42, which is a 22 long rifle over a 410 gauge. Both of these are excellent for taking large and small game. I have a pennant for the older rifles with a real wood stock and a nice heft. Air Rifles a former student of mine who, has who was involved in air gun competitions introduced me to high-powered air rifles for hunting small game. Until my vision changed recently, I was using a Benjamin 392 with iron sights, but have switched to a Hatson 125 with a scope. This shoots 25 caliber pellets and is excellent for dropping squirrels and rabbits easily within a 30-yard range, not to mention that the ammo is cheap. The Pyramid Air Company has a wide selection of air rifles and is, good, and is a good place to start your research. A recurve bow. During archery season, I use a bare Kodiak recurve or a handmade cherry bow, both of which have a 45 draw weight. I, li I like making my own cedar arrows and use blunt tips for small game and a Zwicky Eskimo broadheads for large, larger game. I fetch my own... I fletch my own arrows with a Bitsenberg jig. Slingshot. I like making my own high-powered slingshots using tubular bands and use these each fall for squirrel hunting. The beauty of practicing with a slingshot is that the muscle memory carries over to your archery skills. I use 50 caliber black powder balls for ammo. Cone bears. When we trap, when we teach trapping courses in Utah, we utilize cone bears and snares. A 110 cone of bear is an excellent game getter that we use for procuring small animals while we use the larger 330 cone of bear for beavers and raccoon. These are extremely efficient traps that can easily fracture your fingers or limbs if you are unfamiliar with how to use them. Take a trapper's education course, obtain a permit, and then spend time with an experienced trapper if you plan on using cone of bears. There's a reason that the archaeological record the, the, there's a reason that the archaeological record the world over indicates that trapping was the prime means of sustenance for indigenous cultures. Rat traps obtained from big box hardware stores would be another option for procuring small game and don't have the hazardous kickback that the cone of bear possesses. 
just real quick on those rat traps. I mean, you can only you might be only be able to use them certain a certain amount of times, but if you can drill a hole in in one of those, and then you go out to the um, uh, even if you're putting them, uh, you can put them on a um, on a tree and maybe screw them down, and and uh, go ahead and put the bait there, and uh, you know they're not necessarily on the ground, so uh, that's something you might be able to do fishing. Fishing isn't something that I do much in Arizona, but when I head up to North Regions, I bring a collapsible Shakespeare fishing pole, six-pound test line, three dozen assorted fish hooks, and assorted artificial baits. Obviously, if you live in a more productive state, then your fishing tackle should be hardier than my kit, and you may even want to add in crayfish traps. The latter can be found at Walmart. Cast and grill nets. Both cast and grill nets allow the fishermen to harvest a large quantity of fish while expending little effort. These are the time-tested methods used throughout the world by maritime cultures. If I were venturing into a remote waterway or wilderness region and weight wasn't an issue, I would definitely pack along a cast or grill net for survival purposes. Cast nets range in size from 3 to 8 feet, while the standard survival grill net is 12, by 12 foot by 4 foot and packs down to the size of a softball. A menu of small game. Small game includes cottontail rabbit, squirrel, marmot, skunk, gopher, woodchuck, jackrabbit, chipmunk, ringtail, raccoon, and porcupine. Not all of these are legal to hunt and you will have to check out your state's game laws. One squirrel or rabbit will generally provide a single meal for one person. On the other hand, a fat raccoon or porcupine might last one person for four days. Raccoon tastes like roast beef if grilled over an open fire or the barbecue and is an outstanding meat. Most of us tend to have a romantic image of the native hunters re relying on deer or buffalo as their sole means of sustenance, when in fact it was the microfauna or small mammals that provided the consistent day-to-day -day food source in many parts of the world. In terms of animal population density, you will be able to sustain yourself with a small game for easier than larger animals like deer and elk, and obtaining hunter permits for small game is far easier. One wildlife biologist in Nevada found that the number of small mammals per square kilometer was, about, was around 4,600. Another study in Man Manitoba, Canada revealed 10 squirrels per acre. The research also suggests that spring and early summer showed the highest concentration of mammals. If you are reading this article, then you had ancestors who hunted and gathered, fished and foraged. Our body and mind evolved from a much different lifestyle than the one we lead today. In our largely urban world, you were born with the senses and abilities to be a hunter. They are already hardwired into your being. Spend some time focusing on one of the four key areas listed here and get started this weekend. Learn about the top 10 edible plants used in your region, acquire proficiency with the 22 rifle or air rifle, get a small game hunting permit, and take to the field, spend time fishing with your family or the next camping trip. The time to learn how to feed yourself from nature's kitchen is before a crisis hits and the grocery shelves empty. Start out with a few of these activities and you will be not only eating healthier but prepared to supplement your home pantry in the event of an emergency. So, uh, you know, again, over at uh, you know MD Creekmore's website, survivalistblog.net, you have a lot of uh, uh, you know you have a big community, and so you I think there's like 52 comments here. Yeah, 52 comments. 
So a lot of people adding to the discussion. Uh, but I think is a is a great article. Went into some some good things here. Um, you know, uh, talking about the you know the twenty twos and the air rifles and and not focusing on the big game. Uh, you know, looking at some traps and different things like that that are uh, that would be you know possible and probable for you to uh, to use if you needed it. So uh, go check this one out um, at the survivalistblog.net. Um, you'll probably want to read it just a little bit more slowly than I read it, and uh, you know maybe see if there are some some of these things that you want to go ahead and start uh, considering and start uh, start doing. Uh, if you are trying to introduce firearms to your family, uh, you know maybe starting out with uh, with an air rifle might be you know might be the the way to go or 22. Um, there's some people out there that are just so hesitant. Some, you know, like women or whatever that are. Uh, a friend of mine married a, a a woman who is just, you know, doesn't doesn't believe in firearms at all. I mean, I don't think she's like totally opposed to it, but she just never like was raised around it, and it's coming from a whole different culture. And uh, so when you start talking about firearms, it's, it's you know, it's kind of she's like starts rolling her eyes. It's like, why why would you need that? You know, if you're not going to be out hunting and stuff like that, but you know, if you want to start introducing something like that, you know, going out and shooting some cans with uh, with a pellet gun, you get to you get to uh, introduce the rules of, of uh, proper firearm safety and uh, have some fun shooting some cans and see who can do that. And uh, from there, you can move on up. So uh, yeah, again, firearms and gardening are the gateway drugs to preparedness. So a good article over there at the survivalistblog.net. Go check that one out. All right, our last one is coming to us from BackdoorSurvival.com, and this is uh, how to make a water filter last longer. I think sometimes we don't really consider this uh, this topic because you know we were thinking about you know water and survival, and uh, you know we need to drink water and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you know if you if you are depending on your water filter, there are some things that you should be doing uh, if you are depending on it. To make it last longer and you know, not get so clogged up and dirty and so you or even broken uh, to where you can uh, it can serve you as long as is possible. So because if you're using it, you're you know you're using it. There's a reason for it, right? So again, uh, BackdoorSurvival.com: How to make a water filter last longer. Even the most expensive and longest-lasting filter has a limited life. In a survival situation, it is important to take care of your filter so you can get the most out of it. Although it is not pleasant to think about, a crisis requiring you to make use of your prepping might last far longer than anyone can imagine. Here are some tips that getting tips for getting the most out of your filter. Number one is let water settle out before pumping. If water is very cloudy or dirty, you should fill a larger container and let it set, set until sediment is on the bottom. Filters can become clogged quickly if you are filtering very muddy water. How long it takes for sediment to settle out depends on just how much is in it. Any amount of settling that you allow to happen is going to be a major help and significantly increase the life of your filter. Number two is clean as directed. Your filter should come with instructions on cleaning it. Keeping up with cleaning allows for a lot of contaminants to be flushed out so the filter stays clean and able to provide more output. Some filters come with cleaning kits while others may not. Check into how to clean yours now when you can find the information online. Number three, don't pump water right after a storm. If you have some idea of what the weather might be like, then try to pump water when there is no storm runoff causing turbid, or, turbid and cloudy water. 
Great clouds or thunderheads are a sign that you should filter the water you need for a day or two if possible. Number four, only filter food prep water that is not going to be boiled. If you are heating food to high temperatures, then you don't have to use filtered water to cook with or prepare foods. Of course, if you are dealing with heavily contaminated water, water, then you still may want to filter just to be safe. But in a lot of cases where water is clear but might have microscopic contamination, then boiling it is effective. You can also just boil water and store it for cooking and cleaning. So uh, I know there's some people that uh, in the, uh, oh, there, there's one comment uh, that's talking about that um, just boiling water uh, is not going to get out the, all the nasties in there as far as, uh, but he mentions in here about the filter. You know, you might want to you know, filter it out if there's heavy contaminants. Uh, I'm taking that as, uh, you know, if there's a lot of uh, it's turpid water, there's, you know, there's a lot of sediment in there and stuff like that, you want it to settle settle down definitely. Um, I think I would still to be safe unless it just was not possible. I think I would probably still boil water. So let's say for instance you're doing like a mountain house pouch or uh, you're cooking you know some uh, legacy food um, like I, you know I've talked about before in the past uh, and you heat up water um, you know you, you it won't get to boiling uh, if you do that. So uh, I think I would always probably still boil it first. Um, before I started cooking with it. That's just me. Number five, pre-filter water through a screen, cheesecloth, or other cloth. If you don't want to wait for water to settle out, you, you can use cheesecloth or a very fine mesh screen to get out larger particles quickly. Cheesecloth can be rinsed out and dried for reuse and has a lot of uses. You can even use a piece of standard cloth, but try to use light colors that don't have dyes that can leach out and have to be filtered out with your water filter. A white cotton t-shirt scrap works well. Number six, seek out the clearest and cleanest sources when possible. If you have water available in several places, check out how clear each one is. In some situations, you have to filter whatever you can find, but it is well worth it to check out all sources within a reasonable distance of where you are. Walking an extra 100 feet each day to get water might make a real difference in the long term. Number seven, catch rainwater. Rainwater is far cleaner in most cases than surface water. If you have some method to catch water such as rain barrels or other containers, then you have a source of cleaner water than you might expect. Filtering rainwater means virtually no sediment unless you are collecting it off something that is. Of course, in the event of nuclear fallout or environmental pollution such as acid rain, the surface water might still be a cleaner and better option. Water filters are capable of filtering out some radioactive environmental pollutants, but it is not going to be great for the life of your filter. If you are using a roof for water catchment, then you can get some sediment or dirt and dust off of your roof and into the water. However, the majority of this will come off within the first hour or less of rain. If you want the cleanest catchment water, run outside and dump the first water that comes off the roof and then allow your barrels to fill. Um, yeah, and you might want you know uh, a first flush uh, if you have a rain barrel system. Uh, I, in fact, I would recommend uh, investing in that. So we have some pretty big barrels up at the up at the country. Uh, we haven't um, they're they're in place. We just haven't tightened um, the gutters to them yet. But uh, putting in one of those first flush diverters is you know one of the most important things that we're going to do there. 
So uh, that will definitely help to get out a lot of the nasties. But even at that, we, we we're still going to filter that. Um, you know, we're not going to drink that straight, definitely. So, um, all right, number eight is store it properly. Water filters need to be stored right for a long, for a long life. Some filters ask that you store it broken down. If you are using it daily, then at least make sure to clean it and allow it to air dry in a broken down state occasionally. Also, make sure to protect it from impacts. A broken element is not functional and dropping on a rock or if it gets hit by something can mean you are out of water. Number nine, replace charcoal if your filter uses it. Some filters use activated charcoal for, for filtration. Over time, this may need to be replaced. There's often a refill kit you can buy, so if you have this type of filter, stock up on some refills while you can. Number 10, protect your filter from freezing. You can completely destroy your water filter if you allow it to freeze. In a survival situation, you might be exposed to cold temperatures. Keep your water filter packed with all the water pumped out and padded to avoid breakage, but close enough to your body to stay reasonable, te to stay reasonable temp at a reasonable temperature. At night, make sure it is well wrapped and in your tent or again packed close to you, but where it will not be damaged while you are asleep. A completely dried out filter, of course, will not freeze like one that has even a small amount of water in it. The drier your filter when cold temps come, the better off you are. Number 11, store away from sunlight. Some exposure to the sun is to be expected, but leaving your filter out in the sun for longer than it needs to dry out can lead to a shorter life. The plastic housing of a lot of filters is made to be very tough, but over the years, too much sunlight can lead to cracks and splits. Number 12, filter water you really need and no more. Pumping water out and not drinking it is not okay in a survival situation when you need your pump to really last. If you are leaving water in glasses or see a family member or partner doing this, then you need to have a talk. If water is sealed in a good bottle, it can be pumped for use later, but don't, go, don't get too far ahead of yourself and waste it. Signs your filter needs replaced. Number one is off taste. If water has a funny taste to it, alter filter after filtering, then this means that the filter is not working properly. If water tastes strange, clean your filter and then filter again and see if it is still tasting off. If so, then you need to get a replacement ASAP. Number two, sediment and debris. If your filter is not getting rid of debris, then check it out to make sure it is put together the right way. But if it is, but if it is then your filter has reached the end. Number three, waterborne illnesses. If you experience Giardia-like symptoms, then it is natural to suspect your water filter. Unless you can rule it out entirely, look into a replacement ASAP. Normally, you will, no you will notice an off-taste far before anything this serious happens, but if you have ruled out a lot of other things and not your filter, you might want to check it out and make sure that it doesn't have an unseen split, crack, or anything else. Number four, lots of cracks. Ceramic elements can become cracked and damaged through impacts from falls or similar. If you are starting to notice cracks in the ceramic, then be on guard for a reduction in water quality. Number five, no water coming out. The most likely thing that is going to happen if your filter is full of sediment is that it just stops giving you a sufficient stream of water. If you have cleaned it recently and it is still doing this, then you need to replace at least the filter element itself if the housing is still good and replacement cartridges are available. Water filters like the Catadyne cost 245 but they filter 10,000 gallons of water and you can pump it out faster than a lot of pumps. The less 
gallons of filter is rated to, the quicker they can become clogged up. Water is essential and you definitely want to make sure that you plan far more filtration capabilities than you actually anticipate needing. Always have a backup. Even if you have the most high-end premium filter, you can get you still need to have a second filter available just in case. In a survival situation, this is the difference between life and death. We are lucky to have such things as the Sawyer Mini or Life Straw available. $15 to $30 as a backup just in case. Alright, so um, good article there um, to take care of your water filter. You know, um, I know a lot of people probably uh, have water filters uh, you know, stored up in closets or whatever, maybe in your gear, maybe in your bug out bag. Uh, you, part of part of the thing is you don't want to break it open and start messing with it, and uh, you know start start u- using it, and then it's uh, you don't put it back to, you know together, you don't dry it, whatever, all that kind of stuff. And but uh, on the other side of that is that you don't know how to use it, right? So um, definitely, I've always been a big proponent of um, life straws, uh, especially if you have like family members that you're preparing for that. Um, you know, if the poop hits the fan, you, you might have a bug out bag for them or you have a, a plan in place, but they don't really care or they're not really preparing. So uh, in that scenario, like a, a life straw would be really easy for them. You just like open it up, you know, put it in the water and then start sucking it up. Right. Uh, so I mean, I've always been a big proponent of those. But uh, the Sawyer Minis, I think, are, are really uh, a good deal as well. You can you can filter a lot of water there. Uh, the catadines, I've never, I don't have too much experience with catadines. They're, they're just, they're very expensive. So I never kind of went, I never went that way. Uh, very, very expensive there. But anyway, I know uh, probably a lot of you that are listening uh, have one. So uh, maybe if you have any, uh, uh, and you know, to be honest with you, I haven't like read an article recently, uh, actually in a long time about uh, catadines. In fact, just just looking at this article, I think that's the first time I've seen it mentioned in a long, long time uh, that uh, the catadine filters. So anyway, if you have one, if you've used it, hey, feel free to uh, drop some uh, information in the comment section, and I'll uh, I'll share it with everyone. Uh, and that goes for anything else. You know, if you've uh, you heard anything on episode 124 that kind of made sense or didn't make sense to you or, you know, you have an idea or whatever, hey, feel free to come over to episode 124 and drop uh, drop me a line in the comment section and I'll be happy to share that out uh, the next day or, you know, whenever you, you get around to it. Uh, I always get a pop-up when uh, or an email when someone drops a comment, you know, to, uh, to, uh, to post it. So uh, I'll always normally always see it. So uh, that's uh, unless you've, uh, I've, I've, uh, no, I'll, I'll always see it. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I'll always see it if you post something there. So anyway, uh, good articles there. Go check out Backdoor Survival. Um, you know, there's some links there that you might want to go check out and uh, get some more information on there. But it does it does speak to the to the issue of how important water is. Water is just it's so important. I mean, we, you can't nail that down enough, right? So uh, that's it for episode 124. Thanks so much for uh, hanging out with me all the way to the end here of the podcast. Uh, really appreciate all the listeners out there and the feedback that I get. If uh, if you're seeing some value, if you're getting some value from the podcast, I appreciate it. If you'll share out the uh, the episode and uh, you know let other people know that we're here. Uh, if you uh, if you are inclined to, we really appreciate reviews on iTunes and uh, still waiting for a review on Stitcher. 
So if you're listening on Stitcher, which I know people are, but uh, I'd love for you, I'd love to have a, a couple of reviews over there uh, just to let people know that um, it is a, a podcast that they might want to listen to. Uh, but uh, do appreciate the ones on iTunes. Well, most most people come to us from iTunes, so I uh, do appreciate the reviews over there. So uh, that, with that, that's it. Choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.